Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Well, we're going to keep going on our uh, series here in Revelation, and uh, we're going to cover the letter to the church in Smyrna, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll pray. And Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last. Now, that's a common title. Jesus loves that title for himself. It's not the first time he's used it in Revelation. It's not the last, I don't think, either. Um, But anyway, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's talk to Jesus again. We do a lot of prayer in our services, and we can never do too much. Lord Jesus, during this month of prayer and fasting, in fact, during this year of 2019, our top prayer request as a church this year is that we would grow in our love and passion for you. And that's the big focus of our prayer and fasting this month as well. And, it, and it's no mistake, Lord. I didn't plan it this way, but we're writing the letters to the, to the churches in, in Revelation. And that's exactly the message of these letters, is that we would love you wholeheartedly. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would stir in our hearts today a fire and a zeal for you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, let's work our way through this. Let's look at those titles again. We've talked about some of these titles before because Jesus has used them before. But if he says it again, then it means that it's important to him. And he says to the church in Smyrna, the words of the first and the last. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, this is directly, Jesus, this is on purpose. He is directly taking a title that only Yahweh, God, uh, can use for himself. He's taking it directly out of Isaiah. And uh, there's a number of places in Isaiah where God, whose name is Yahweh, says, I am the first and the last. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, so I won't spend much time. But I just want to show you too, because again, the fact that Jesus says it again, he, it means something. It's powerful. And so Jesus says, in, in, or God says in Isaiah 41 verse 4, I the Lord, and again, whenever you see Lord in caps, the, it's the, the, the actual name of God, Yahweh, the first and the last, I am he. And I could show you a number of passages in Isaiah. I'll just show you one more, Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, that's Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. So when Jesus introduces himself again by this title, he's directly taking a title that can only be applied to Yahweh. Only God can say, I am the first and the last. That's one of his titles. And so when Jesus says it in Revelation, he is directly tying himself. He's saying, I am God. The God of the Old Testament, the God who created the universe, the God who came down in thunder and fire on Mount Sinai, only he can say, I am the first and the last, and I am he. I am that God. Jesus is God. Very important. Now, of course, there's also this, like, incredible, awe-inspiring juxtaposition. So on the one hand, he says, I'm the first and the last. I am Yahweh. I am that God you read about in the Old Testament. I am he. And he says, I'm also the one who died and came to life. Now, again, I hope we as Christians... Now, like we just, it, some of the stuff we just start to take for granted. But in the first century, again, this would have been shocking. That God died? The God who was on Mount Sinai somehow died? How's that possible? The God who has no beginning and no end, he somehow died? And yes, in Jesus, 
we have these two things come together. We have Yahweh, who split the Red Sea, who brought plagues on Egypt, this awesome God, the God in the burning bush, the God of the universe. And he, in this miracle, you know, this miraculous event, this miracle, this theological word we use, this big word, the incarnation, that God took on human flesh in Jesus. And he died and came to life. It's amazing. Yahweh, the first and the last, the eternal one, also now in human form, who died and came to life. Now, so Jesus is both those things, and that's important. Those, that's incredibly important theology. It's incredibly important for us to worship him and all that sort of stuff. But it's interesting, when you get to know a little more of the background of Smyrna, there's something else going on behind the scenes here with these titles as well. The most important thing is Jesus is saying, I'm God, and I died for your sins. That's the most important thing. But underneath that, Jesus is also being very clever because there's lots of titles he introduces himself by here in these letters to the churches. And it's interesting that in the case of Smyrna, he specifically picks these two. And the reason that's interesting is if you know a little bit about Smyrna's background, uh, these titles actually parallel some of the things that the people in Smyrna said about themselves. So for example, Smyrna was a very proud city in the, in the, in the Roman province of Asia. They were constantly competing with Ephesus to be the best. And specifically, they competed with Ephesus to be the first city in the, in, the, in the Roman province of Asia. They were known as the most beautiful city in the whole province of Asia, which was a huge province. And in fact, many of their coins, they had stamped on there, first, first in size and beauty. And so it's no accident that at the same time Jesus says, I'm first and the last, which is the most important part of that is just, I am Yahweh, I'm that God. But behind it too, it's like Jesus is throwing in this little subtle connection, this little wink-wink. He says, I know you guys think of yourselves as the first, but I'm the first and the last. And also with the died and, uh, and came to life, it's also interesting, Smyrna was very proud of their history, and actually they had in their history uh, been destroyed in 580 B.C., they were destroyed by a neighboring uh, uh, nation called the, the Lydians, had destroyed them. The city, actually, the city of Smyrna lay in ruins for like 300 years. People lived around there, but the ruins of the city itself, which had always been very beautiful even in ancient times, laid in ruins until Alexander the Great had the idea to rebuild it. And so eventually they rebuilt it, and now it was this beautiful city. And so actually they, had the, they were very proud of their history that they were a city that had been resurrected. And so it's interesting that Jesus in his titles, again, the most important part of the titles is just who Jesus is. But underneath it, you can see that Jesus has picked these titles as sort of wink-wink. It'd be sort of like if, if Jesus wrote us a letter specifically here at Southland. And by the way, would that not be cool? And a little bit nerve-wracking. Can you imagine opening the letter from Jesus to Southland? <sighs> but it'd be amazing, right? And you open the letter, and in his title, he works in Steinbach's motto, it's worth the trip. Can you imagine that if he did that? <laughs> and, and basically what he's doing is he's saying, I know you. I don't just know you in the sense of from a distance, I'm this awesome God. He is that. I, he is this awe-inspiring God of the universe, and he is in heaven looking down on us. But in this, in this way that he cleverly works in even who Smyrna is, he says, I know you guys. I know you Smyrnians. I know you Steinbachians and you Blumenorsians and uh, Blumen Martians, I guess, or something. You uh, Mitchellites. I know you. He knows, he knows us intimately. He knows our little city mottos. He knows our little area quirks. Did you ever think that Jesus is actually just affectionate about us Mennonites? Do you ever think about that? 
and even French people. It was not incredible. <laughs> you know, he, do you ever think he, he, I mean, he knows all about Fospa and Metaschlope and, and Schmonfad and all that sort of stuff. He knows all that stuff. And he loves our, our, our you know, our little Plowdeach-isms and all that sort of stuff. He knows about squeaky cheese. He knows us. <laughs> the awesome God of the universe knows us and knows the little things about us. And now he goes on in 2 verse 9, and he's going to say some specific things he knows about Smyrna. He says, I know, there that is again, I know, I know you guys. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So now, getting more serious, he talks about three things he knows about them. He says, I know your tribulation. The Greek word there is philipsis. It means crushing pressure. It's not just, you know, persecution. It's like a crushing pressure. And he says, I know your poverty, and I know the slander that's coming against you. Each of those three things is really important. The church in Smyrna was going under a tremendous amount of pressure. And the thing you have to understand about persecution in the Roman Empire is it wasn't consistent, okay? There was lots of persecution of, of, of Christians in the early centuries in, Ro- in the Roman Empire, but it was very inconsistent. It would be worse in some places than in other places. Some places it would be less, some places it would be more. Certain periods of time it would be worse, certain periods of time it would almost disappear. Uh, it was, it was kind of sporadic and not consistent. In Smyrna, it was fairly consistently very bad. And the reason it was very bad, in particular in the time when this letter was written, the reason it was particularly bad in Smyrna is because Smyrna was, uh, was desperate to prove themselves to Rome. And I guess the, the best way I know how to say it is, you know, like, you know, in school, kids will say, you know, that maybe a, a kid is sucking up to the teacher, right? We all, we all know that. So, like, sucking up means you're, 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 I don't, I don't even need to explain it. I don't know how to explain it, right? Okay, you just know what it means, right? So, Smyrna was like that with Rome, okay? You have to understand, to an extreme level, it was their goal to prove to Rome that they were the most loyal city, and so they were the ones, in fact, Smyrna was the city that invented worshiping Roman emperors, Many of you no doubt have heard that, you know, at various periods of time in the Roman Empire, they would actually worship the emperors. That actually didn't start in Rome. Rome liked it and, and took it on, but Smyrna invented it, okay? Uh, in 23 AD, that's, uh, or AD 23, when, when Jesus was walking on the earth at that point, he would have been a young adult, he wasn't, he wasn't in his ministry yet, but uh, they built, uh, Smyrna built a temple to Augustus Caesar, who had already been dead for, for a few years at that point, but they built a temple to him so you could worship him. And then, and then they just, that, that was just, but they were like, look, we are your most loyal subjects. And then two years later, they're like, okay, we're going to even top ourselves in that. And they built a temple to the living emperor, Emperor Tiberius. And then that wasn't even enough. So they built a temple to Tiberius's wife. And then they even built a temple to the Senate. So if you were in Smyrna, you could worship the Senate. You could worship the emperor's wife. You could worship the emperor. You could worship dead emperors. You, they, but they were huge on worshiping the emperor. And of course, it wasn't, you know, they didn't have ideas like religious tolerance or religious freedom in those days. Like, like if, you know, we think, well, okay, go ahead, worship the emperor if you want. Um, but it wasn't like that. Like here in Canada, we're so blessed that you can worship any god you want. And that is such a good thing. We don't want anyone to be coerced into Christianity or any other religion, right? So here in Canada, it's a beautiful thing that people can worship whoever they want. That is a wonderful thing. 
They didn't have that in the Roman Empire. And in Smyrna, it was an embarrassment to them because they're trying to prove themselves to Rome. So they want all of their citizens, you know, paying homage to Rome. And so it was a sign. And, and of course, back in those days too, worship was also a sign. It was a big thing for a sign of loyalty. And so if you were wanted to be a, a business person or a, a political leader or anybody in that city, you would go into the temple and you would take a pinch of, of incense and you would throw it on the altar and you would say, you know, Caesar is God or something like that. It wasn't like a long ritual or anything. Just, you know, just, that, just a little thing. But of course, the, the Christians couldn't participate in that. And, uh, and so as a result, they actually were not allowed to do business. Uh, there's evidence that they had Christian shops were ransacked and boycotted and, uh, and stuff stolen and all that kind of stuff. And so as a result of their following Jesus, and that's why you see Jesus says there, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Why are the Christians all poor in Smyrna? It's a very wealthy city. And of course, in any city, you're going to have some poor people. But why are all the Christians poor? And the reason is their choice not to worship Caesar was extremely costly to them economically. I know your poverty, okay? I know your poverty. Now, you can imagine, and then you think of that word tribulation, philipsis, crushing pressure. You can start to feel now some of this crushing pressure to compromise. You can almost hear some of the voices of compromise. Think of what would go on in your head. If you've got mouths to feed, I mean, it's one thing, isn't it true? It's one thing for us to read these things in the Bible and go, oh, that's so neat. Those people stayed strong under pressure. And we read stories about Chinese Christians staying strong under pressure. We think, that's so awesome. And we kind of get pumped up inside. And we hear Ron Pierce tell stories of people standing strong. We go, that's great. But imagine if we were in their shoes. What does that feel like when you've got mouths to feed and a thriving business and you give your life to Jesus and you can no longer go into the temple and, and put that incense on the altar and say Caesar is God and now people are actually mad at you they say because and you say why would they be mad at me remember it's their thinking back then is totally different first of all if worship is like loyalty you look like a bad citizen you look like a bad citizen why can't you what's the harm what's the harm what's the matter with you Christians why can't you just throw a bit of incense say Caesar is God go back to worshiping Jesus nobody's saying you can't worship Jesus but just show that you're a loyal citizen. And so they, they actually started to get the reputation, you're not loyal citizens. And they started to get the reputation, you're not grateful. How can you not just, you know, pledge your loyalty to, to Caesar? He's the one that provides roads for us and safety and this economic prosperity, you know, that the Roman Empire enjoyed compared to many of the surrounding nations. All the people said, that's because of Caesar. That's because of Rome. Why can't you be grateful? And so they actually became to be known as kind of ungrateful, disloyal citizens. People were suspicious of them. They even became hated as atheists, ironically. Can you imagine being a Christian and you're hated because you're an atheist? Because people said they never go into any of the temples. They don't have any idols in their homes. They don't have any idols in their homes. They refuse to go into the temple and worship the emperor or any other god. They must not believe in God. They're atheists. So they were hated for being bad citizens, for being disloyal, for being ungrateful, and for being atheists. And you say, yeah, but none of that's true. You're right. None of that is true. And you know, I think we have a, a bit of a romanticized picture of how persecution works. I think many of us as Christians, and if you read stories about Chinese people who are persecuted, and you read stories throughout history of how people are persecuted, we actually uh, don't think of persecution right for the most part. We think, you know, if someone came to persecute me, we kind of have these thoughts of like, 
someone says, deny Jesus, and we refuse to do it, and then they say, we hate you because you love Jesus, and we kind of stand strong. I'll never, you know, I'll never be disloyal to Jesus. Do you know that rarely does it happen that people hate you explicitly because you love Jesus? They usually hate you. I'll tell you why they usually hate you. They usually hate you because of lies they believe about you. In the Roman Empire, nobody said, we hate you because you love Jesus. They said, we hate you because you won't be loyal to Caesar. You say, yeah, but that's not true. I know it's not true, but this is how the devil works. It's with slander. It's with slander. It's, you know, I, I don't think any kind of persecution is easy, but it, at least in our minds, it would be easier if people said, I hate you because of Jesus. That would be easy. What's hard is when they hate you for being a bigot or, or ignorant or something else. But Peter says that's exactly why Peter and Jesus both. Let me read you a couple of passages. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Why? Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if, Peter's only experience of Christianity is slander. When you follow Jesus, he's like, this is, this is not, you know, some people get it, some people don't. He says, if you follow Jesus, people are going to believe lies about you because that's what happens. And his whole point in this passage is live such good lives that, that it actually is slander and not truth. That's Peter's big point here. They're already going to hate you and think you're a bad person, so don't actually be bad and give them a reason to hate you. But when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Look what he says uh, just a chapter earlier. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, for Pete's sake, have integrity in your business dealings. Like if you're a Christian, for Pete's sake, pay your bills. I'm serious. Why would you give people actual reasons to hate us? They're already going to hate us. And Peter's saying, be honorable in everything you do so that when they slander you, it's not for the truth. If you're a Christian, you pay your bills. Yeah, but da-da-da-da-da, all, I have all these reasons. No, you know what you do? You make a sacrifice and you do the right thing. You actually bend over backwards to do the right thing. Why? Because you're carrying Jesus' name. And when you work for an employer... You bend over backwards to have integrity and to work as hard as you can and to do everything you're asked to do. Because why? Because you follow Jesus. So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, now look at this, when they speak against you as what? Evildoers. Why are they going to speak against Christians? Are they going to speak against you because you love Jesus? Well, they might do that. Sometimes they might overtly hate you because of Jesus explicitly. But that's not, that's not usually how it comes out. That's more the glamorous side, maybe, if there's any glamour to persecution, which there isn't. But that's not why they do it. They speak against these evildoers. Here's how Satan works. He say, that's not fair. You're right, it's not fair. The devil doesn't fight fair. This is how he fights. It's with a river of slander. So this idea, you know, I'll stand strong for, for Jesus when someone asks me if I love Jesus, that's usually not how it's going to go down. How it's going to go down is you're going to get hated for being a bigot, for being ignorant, for being, standing in the way of progress, for hating people, for being a hypocrite. And all of those things, hopefully, they're not true. But that's what you're going to get hated for, for being an evildoer. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Blessed are you 
when, uh, when others revile you and persecute you and what? Utter all kinds of evil against you, what? Falsely. Now again, the key here is that they're uttering against you falsely, not truthfully. There's no honor in them hating you because you're actually a bad person. But blessed are you when, not if, others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Two encouragements here. First of all, if you are persecuted because people think you are whatever. In our day and age, we could say bigot or something. That's a common one that's, that's said against Christians. If you're hated for that and it's not true, great is your reward in heaven. Now, two reasons why it's encouraging. First of all, being persecuted for being something that you're not shows that you're part of Jesus' family. That's one of the reasons it's encouraging. It just shows you're part of an unbroken chain going back centuries and centuries of God's people who have always been hated because of slander. You would not believe some of, the, some of the lies that were made up about Christians in the early Roman Empire. They said they were cannibalistic because they took communion. Literally, that was one of the lies they spread, that they ate babies, that they ate flesh, all this kind of stuff. It was just totally made up, okay, that they were disloyal, that they were ungrateful, they were hated. And, then, and the thing is, most people don't get up in the morning and think to themselves, I'm going to make up lies about Christians. They get up in the morning and they actually believe that. Because there's a satanic force behind it. It's a river of slander, and it floods the whole culture. And it's always to turn people against Jesus' followers. But most of the people who are, who are you know, flooded by that river don't know. They don't consciously think, I don't like followers of Jesus. They just believe everything that's sort of out there in the culture, and they really think we're bad people, which is why we need to love our enemies. For the most part, they're not consciously being bad. They're just believing lies. It's very frustrating at times in the flesh. But in the spirit, Jesus says, you are blessed. Remember now that when you are hated for being what you're not, you're part of an unbroken chain of the Christian family going back thousands of years. And even into the Old Testament, because they hated the prophets too. Anybody who followed God was hated for being a bad person because of slander. And second of all, you're blessed because your reward in heaven is very great. Let's go back to Smyrna and the book of Revelation. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Let's just stop now and just think about that for a moment. And I know your poverty. What would it be like if the choice is put before us? So again, it's one thing for us to go, way to go Smyrna. It's another thing for us to prepare our own selves. How loyal are we to Jesus? If it came down to, um, you know, all you have to do is whatever it is, just agree with this thing over here. Sign off on this thing over here. It's not a big deal. Just throw the incense on the altar. It's not a big deal. And then you can feed your family. And then you can participate in the marketplace. What happens if you are forced to affirm something or go along with something, and if you don't, you could lose your job, or you could lose a promotion, or as a church, you could lose your charitable status, or whatever it is. What actually happens? If we actually put ourselves, in fact, instead of just thinking about Smyrna, let's think about ourselves now. What happens in that moment? Now, do you think that some of them must have had thoughts, you know, there must have been some temptation to compromise, don't you think? And do you know what the, the voice of compromise sounds like? You know what it sounds like often? It sounds like the voice of practicality. Compromise and practicality often go hand in hand. And here's how the voice can sound. 
Can you imagine being one of those Smyrnian Christians and you think to yourself, and maybe you talk with others who are having the same temptation and you're like, I mean, we, we totally believe in Jesus. We don't have to say we don't believe in Jesus. We only have to say, you know, something about Caesar. Maybe we can mumble that part. Maybe we could just kind of throw some incense on there and go, Caesar is a good guy. Caesar's not bad. And just kind of throw it on there. Why can't we just, like, let's just compromise a little bit and then think, like, who's going to tell these people about Jesus? Like, now the thought comes in, who's going to tell the people at my workplace about Jesus if I lose my job? Right? Who, who's going who's gonna to give a choice? If I don't get this contract, if I don't sign off on this or that and the government, blah, 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 I don't know what's coming in the future. We're not there yet, thankfully. But we just, we put ourselves in this Smyrna shoes. I could lose that contract. I could lose a lot of business. I could lose a promotion. But who's going to tell people what Jesus said? Who's going to give a big check to the church to help with all this ministry that's going on with high school students and LTA and Camel Street? How am I going to do that? And so practical considerations work, themselves, work their way in. And you think to yourself, I don't actually have to stop believing Jesus. I just have to do this little thing. I want you to notice that Jesus does not say to them, I know your poverty, and by the way, it doesn't matter to me if you throw a bit of incense on the altar. I'd actually prefer you guys are a bit more comfortable and you could give me more money. You notice that? He does not say that. He says, I see your poverty. He actually commends them for being in poverty, for sticking with him. Why? I'm going to tell you why. Because there's something that matters a lot more to Jesus than, what you, than your service. He loves your service. But there's something that matters to Jesus way more. There is something he wants far more from you than your service or your giving. I'll tell you what it is. He wants your uncompromising loyalty. That's what he wants the most. That is what he wants the most. And I'm going to show you that in, uh, in just a moment here. Getting ahead of myself. Faithful unto death. I am way confused. I'm going to get to where I just was in just a moment. Let me show you something else here first. <laughs> Keep on the loyalty thing, but there's, some, there's a couple other things I want to say. This is what happens when I don't look down often enough. Revelation 2, verse 10. Let's go there again. I'm going to come back to loyalty because that's a big one. We've started down that path, now we're going to come back because that is the biggest thing. But I want to just give you some background here. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold the devil. I want you to, and I, I mentioned this a little bit before already, but the devil, there is... The devil is a real person, and he is very powerful, and that's why ultimately this thing, it's not about human beings, and that's why many people are not even conscious of what they're doing. They're not even conscious of why they hate Christians. They don't realize there's a spiritual force behind it that is driving our culture to hate Christianity. It's because the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, so it's about to get even worse than just economic. It's going to get worse, and then I want you to notice there, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, it's interesting. People ask me that often. Ten days? That doesn't even sound that bad, does it? I mean, you're going to be thrown into prison for ten days? Let's just make it through. Next week, Wednesday, we're out. Right? So just get through the week and a half and you're good, right? Well, this is one of those cases, uh, you know, revelation can be annoying like that sometimes because we'd like to just go right through it and just be literal the whole time and it's just easier that way. But sometimes in the context, it just doesn't make sense. I don't think... 10 days here means a week and a half. I don't think Jesus would be warning them about you're going to get thrown in prison for a week and a half and that's just going to end. In fact, we also know historically Polycarp, one of the most famous 
uh, martyrs of all time was burned at the stake in Smyrna 60 or 70 years after this letter. So we know there was ongoing persecution in Smyrna far longer than a week and a half after this. And no, of course, I know there will have been perhaps ups and downs, and this could be part of that. I think 10 days here, though, is symbolic. I think it just makes more sense in the, in, uh, in the context. In, uh, in Bible times, not just in Israel, but in the Roman Empire, in all kinds of cultures in Bible times, the, the number 10 had a lot of symbolic significance. And, and Revelation has, uses numbers as symbols a lot, 7 and 12 and 10. And in ancient times, 10 was the number of completeness. And the reason it, it kind of got that meaning is because if you have 10 fingers, you have all your fingers. If you have nine, you're short, right? If you wake up in the morning, you look down, and you have eight toes, you're missing a couple, right? So 10 became known because of toes and fingers. Just that in ancient times, it just became known as a number. This means completeness. So I really believe what Jesus is saying here to them is just, it, there's a set time, and it has to be completed. And so the encouragement is, the encouragement is God's sovereign and God's in control, and there's a set period of time, and the warning is you have to go through the whole thing. There's, there's no skipping this. Okay, that's really important. There's no skipping this. You have to go for 10 days. You've got to go through till it's, till it's complete. There's no 8 or 6 or 4 or 3. There's 10. You've got to go through the completeness of this thing. You're going to go through it. That's the warning, Okay. Which brings up a really important point, which is why I wanted to come back to this before I go to the, loyal, the, the loyalty thing again. Uh, God won't always answer our prayers for deliverance, at least in the way we want him to. And again, this is really important for us here in the West to grasp because we're just used to God always, you know, when we pray, oh God, you know, we pray for religious freedom. Last year we prayed for it. We have, we're going to have it up on the wall again in 2019. It's a big prayer request. We have religious freedom in our country. We're at a time when this is a big issue. But we're used to in the West that when we pray for things like that, God always seems to come through in the sense that we always continue to have freedom. So that's, that's just amazing. We love that. But we see here in this passage that there comes a time, actually, when God doesn't answer it that way. It's not that he's not answering, but there comes a day when God says, Actually, a win in this case is not more freedom. You will go to prison. The devil is going to be allowed to make you suffer for 10 days. There's going to be a period, and it has to be completed. You can't shortcut it. You can't get out early. It's going to be the whole thing, and you have to suffer. Now, I do want to say something here, because sometimes people get fatalistic, and they go, well, well then why should we pray for religious freedom? Why put it up on a, as a prayer request on the wall and then preach there's a time when God doesn't answer that prayer that way anymore? And so I just want you to know that this is not about fatalism. This is not about, we, we should, I believe, as long as we have religious freedom, we should always pray for religious freedom. We should always advocate for religious freedom. We should always fight in a good way for religious freedom. And the reason is, first of all, because it's the desire of our hearts. We're supposed to ask Jesus for what we want. Amen. But second of all, it's just absolutely biblical to pray for religious freedom. And I always go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first two verses Paul says this to Timothy, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul commands us, he says, we're actually supposed to pray for the government that they will allow us to live peaceful and quiet lives, that they will allow us to follow Jesus freely. That's actually a good thing in God's sight. Religious freedom is a good thing. Even when we see persecution coming, and even though God can turn persecution sometimes for good, there's no question, he can turn persecution for good. But we don't have to want persecution, and we don't have to be fatalistic about persecution. We should always pray for freedom and advocate for freedom because it's a good thing in God's sight. 
okay? But the thing is, God will not always deliver us from it. And so the question is, what do we do when the pressure gets turned up? And look at what Jesus says in Revelation 2, verse 10. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. And so we're back at this loyalty thing. Jesus does not give them an easy way out. He does not say, you know what, I see how hard it is for you to pay the bills. I see the career opportunities you're going to miss. I see how giving is going to go down if the charitable status is lost. I see these different things are going to happen if you don't sign up. Just go throw the pinch of incense and I know you don't mean it. It's not what he says. He says, he gives them the hardest call he possibly can. Be faithful unto death. No compromise. Why? Jesus wants your loyalty and your faithfulness and your fidelity more than he wants your service or your gifts. You say, why? Well, it's tied to the message I preached a couple of weeks ago out of, uh, out to the church in Ephesus, the first letter, where I said, what does Jesus want from us? He wants passion. Our relationship with Jesus is supposed to be a passion relationship, and the parallels throughout Scripture, the parallel is marriage. Now, our relationship to Jesus isn't, I just have to give this little caveat, our relationship to Jesus isn't exactly like marriage, and I have to say that because some of the songs on, on you know, Christian music you hear now, it's almost like Jesus is our boyfriend. I, yuck, okay? He is the God of the universe, and he is awe-inspiring, okay? He's not your boyfriend, but there are huge parallels between our relationship with Jesus and marriage, and because it's supposed to be a passion relationship. And what is one of the absolute keys to marriage? What's one of the things you vow when you get married? I will be faithful to you and to you alone until death parts us. Now, in Jesus' case, it's until death meets us, right? But, but the concept is the same. I will be faithful to you and you alone. Now, here's the thing. That's more important than anything else. And I'll, let me use an example and I'll just, or an illustration, it's not an example, it certainly is an example, it's an illustration, I'll use myself in it, but you can put any of yourselves in it. Imagine that uh, I wasn't a pastor, imagine, you know, I lived in some other city somewhere, and I worked for a, for a huge company, very wealthy company, let's say, and let's say my boss is, uh, is a female, okay, so I'm working for a woman, and uh, let's say she comes to me one day and says, uh, hey, do you want to bless your wife more? Oh, Absolutely. Okay, I'm gonna, I know she has to work still, and that's really tiring her out with the kids and different things, so I, I want to I give you such a big raise that she doesn't have to work anymore. She can be home, that I want to give you a, you know, a trip. I know she's wanted to go on a certain trip. I want to give you all sort of stuff. And you're like, wow, okay, good. I want all that, okay? The only catch is I want us to be able to kiss every now and then. Now, what should I say? You should be able to say that with conviction. The answer is no, okay? It's not, it's not a thoughtful no. That's kind of what I heard. It's no, okay? That, that's the answer to that question is it's no. Why? You say, yeah, but, but, okay, you don't actually have to, you know, it's just a kiss. You don't have to, you know. So that's the compromise verse, right? That's a compromise voice, right? Just, it's just a little kiss, and then think of how much better a husband you can be. You, your wife can get off work, da, 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 you can do all this sort of stuff, and the answer is still no. Why? What is the most important thing? Forget all the practical stuff. The most important thing is I will be faithful to you and to you alone. 
Now, what if she dumbs it down even further? What if the voice of compromise comes in? Because this is what the devil loves. He's just like, okay, okay, fine, not kissing. How about I just, you know, I just think we have such a great relationship or we could have such a great relationship. Forget all that bad stuff. It's, there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't, we can't go for lunch together regularly or something. I'll give you the big raise. You can do all the stuff for your wife. Let's just you and me, the two of us, go for lunch every now and then. And what should the answer still be? No, there we go. Someone over there got it. No, I don't care if it's technically this or that, and I'm going to squeeze. The, the answer is 100% absolutely no, and I'll tell you why. Because my wife doesn't need practical... Now, she likes some of those other things too, right? But what she needs most, and what my vow to her was, this is a passion relationship, this is about oneness, is faithfulness to you and to you alone. And Jesus says in Revelation, forget, you know what, so many Christians today... When it comes to decisions, it gets all complicated because they start thinking about practical stuff. Now, certainly there's lots of decisions that have nothing to do with moral whatever. But it gets all fuzzy because they start to think, instead of just what is the faithful to Jesus thing to do, they start to think about what's going to keep my business going or what's going to help me make more money so I can give more or what's going to da-da-da-da. They start thinking about all that sort of stuff. The only thing that matters when it comes to Jesus and doing the right thing is what is loyalty to Jesus? No compromise. What is loyalty to Jesus? Be faithful, he says, unto death. That means unto the loss of all things. Jesus does not say, I see how hard it is for you. Let me make it easier for you. He says, I've already proved my loyalty to you because I already proved I would go unto death for you. And this is like, a, and this is, in that sense, it's a parallel to a marriage. He says, I want you to give your life for me. Be faithful unto death. And then the reward is tremendous and I will give you the crown of life. This life is so short. Don't, don't make it complicated. This life is so short. You know what our number one goal should be in this life? Just make it to the end 100% fiercely loyal to Jesus. And I'm not talking about being stupid and looking for persecution and not being wise. There's all kinds of places to be wise. And I'm not talking about you've got to stand on, on every hill and fight every last battle publicly, but if it comes to any form of compromise on Jesus or on his word, Jesus says be faithful unto death. The biggest thing is get to the end of your life 100% faithful and loyal to Jesus, and he will give you the crown of life. Amen. So many young Christians today, I want to do great things for God, and that's awesome. It's fine. It's, that's great. We have certain things we have in mind when we think of doing great things for God. You know, the vast majority of human beings who have ever lived and been Christians did not do great things for God in any kind of sense that we would humanly see it. The vast majority of people who have ever lived for Jesus, these people in Smyrna were living in poverty. On a human level, did they ever give millions of dollars? Very doubtful. On a human level, did their church ever get super big? Very doubtful. We're going to see that with a couple of churches in Revelation. They were small and they were poor. Did they ever do great things for God in a human sense? No. You want to know what the greatest thing is you can do for God? Get to the end without compromise. That's all. Jesus isn't looking for you to do great things, although if that happens, that's great. But Jesus just says, be faithful unto death. And when you get to heaven, he is going to, there is going to be such a party. There is going to be such a celebration. You were faithful. Let me give you the crown of life. He has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? First death is when we physically die. All of us, unless Jesus comes back first, which would be awesome. But all of us have to die 
in our physical bodies, that's the first death. What's the second death? Well, every human being, whether you're a believer or not, gets resurrected. Every single one of us. Some are resurrected to life in the kingdom with Jesus forever and ever, and some are resurrected to life forever apart from Jesus. And in Revelation, we'll see this in Revelation chapter 20, John calls that judgment, that, that after that second resurrection, that those who are resurrected to life apart from Jesus, that's the second death. And Jesus says here, any of you who is loyal to me until the end, any of you who sticks with me to the very end, you will not be hurt by that judgment. You will not be hurt by the second death. You will have the crown of life and you will be celebrated in heaven forever and ever. So you ask, what do I do about this? We're not in the middle of persecution yet here in Canada and Certainly, I don't know what the future holds. We can see, certainly we can see a direction that our country is, is going right now. Certainly the Bible tells us things will get worse before Jesus returns, but Canada is not in the Bible, so we don't have to be fatalistic. I, uh, I won't say, you know, who knows what's going to happen in our country, and I hope as church renewal moves and grows, and as our church, as we move and grow and disciple more people and we fall in love with Jesus, you know, maybe, maybe things can be awesome here in our country. I don't know. But we can certainly see a direction our country is moving right now. But we're, not, but we're not being persecuted yet. We're not being persecuted yet by any stretch of the imagination. So you say, well, how do, we, how do we grow in this passion now? How do we grow in this loyalty now? And I believe there's something, a discipline, a Jesus-given discipline, not something you have to do, not a rule, not a law, but something you can choose to do. It's from Jesus and it is absolutely spectacular. It is powerful in sharpening the focus and the hunger of the heart. And that is fasting. And we're in this month of prayer and fasting now. And I would encourage you, we talked about this at the prayer summit on, on New Year's Eve. And lots of you were thinking about it then and praying about it then. But I would encourage any of you who wants. And again, this is not about guilt. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to fast in order to make Jesus love you more. Nowhere. Nothing like that. He will love you just as much whether you fast or don't fast. There's nothing in here about fasting makes you a better Christian. But there is a lot in here about people who love Jesus fasting. It's a, it's a discipline you choose. It's not something you do because you feel guilty. But if you want to go after Jesus this month, wouldn't that be awesome if January was like a Sabbath month out of all the months and we restricted some of the other stuff. You know, Jesus tells that parable about the thorns. The gospel seed goes into a person's life and it grows up. The person gets saved. Ho, oh, and the plant grows up. And then he says what? And the thorns grow up and choke the life out. Doesn't that sound like a lot of Christians today? The gospel seed went in. You gave your life to Jesus. There's no question. You go to church. It's gotten so busy in your life. It's gotten so distracted, not just with work, but with media and social media and everything. It's so busy. It's basically ch choked out. There's no passion for Jesus anymore. And Jesus says, it's up to us. We've got to hack down some thorns. Isn't that awesome to have a month every year where we can actually just stop and say, you know what? Fasting is this beautiful thing. It, it sometimes feels terrible. But fasting is this beautiful thing where we can cut back a bunch of the thorns. We can prune back a bunch of things in our lives, and we can put our focus on Jesus and do something practical to grow in our love for him. And so I'd encourage you, if you haven't made a plan already, I'm, I'm starting with mine uh, this, this week, but I would encourage you, again, not because you have to, not because you feel guilty, not because you think Jesus is going to love you more, but if you want to seek Jesus more, 
You want to have loyalty to him when, a, when, the times get, when the times get harder. You want to have deeper passion for him. I want to encourage you to uh, do a series of, of food fasts. Maybe for you, you've never done it before. Maybe it's one day a week or two days a week or three days a week. Or maybe you just want to do one that's a little bit of a longer one. But along with that food fast, I would encourage you, do some kind of a media fast. Again, this is not about legalism. This is not about it's, you're a sinner if you ever watch TV or movies. It's not about any of that. No, 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 no. Legalism is death. But for a month, what if we restricted it? Maybe you go, you know, Monday through Friday. I'm not going to look up any sports scores. I'm not going to go on social media, whatever it is. Or maybe it's weekends. Or maybe it's evenings, whatever it is. But you, you do some kind of a media fast, and you join that with a food fast. Um, and then you spend extra time in prayer. I know people, I know a number of people over the years who during this month have done a Bible-only fast in terms of rather than any media or watching TV or social media, if they're going to do any kind of reading or watching of anything, they only read the Bible for this month. And you know what I have never heard a single one of those people say at the end of the month? I have never, ever heard one of them say at the end of it, you ask them, so how's it going? And they go, wow, I'm just so depressed. My mind is so cluttered. I have never once heard any of them say that. You and I have regularly heard people who do that kind of a fast say. They come at the end of the month and they go, I can just hear God's voice. My spirit is alive. I feel joy. Now, how many of you would like to feel joy? Now, I know other people, you say to them, so, you know, and people are like, I would love to feel that joy, but I, I just, how could I ever give up any of this stuff? Well, are you feeling joy right now? Like, if you want to keep getting the results you're getting, keep doing what you're doing, right? So if you like where you are right now and you feel like, I'm just on fire for Jesus, just keep doing what you're doing. But if you're feeling a little dead, sometimes you've got to do something a little radical for a month. It's not about legalism. It's not about doing this permanently. But for a month, have a Sabbath month and say, I'm going to seek Jesus. I'm going to worship him more. I'm going to spend more time. Those, those times when I would have spent exercising or making food, or whatever it is, on those days when I'm fasting, I'm going to spend more time with Jesus. And instead of filling my mind with all kinds of other stuff, I'm going to read my Bible, or I'm going to read a good book, or whatever it is, and we seek the Lord for a month, and we ask Him. Now, no doubt you'll have other big requests, things for your marriage, things for your finances. We're going to see God answer all kinds of prayers. But if our number one prayer request was, Jesus, we want to love you more. Can you imagine if our whole church took that on? And next week, we're going to do something. We do this every year church-wide fast. Now, that doesn't mean you all have to do it. Obviously, I can't make you do anything, but next, not this week, but next week, 15th to 17th, Tuesday to, thir to Thursday, and we do this every year. Anybody who wants to join, we're going to do a three-day food fast Tuesday to Thursday. You can start planning it now. And if you want to do it with me, I'll send out emails. Anybody who wants to be on my email list, you'll get, we'll put some stuff on the website this week and stuff, and I'll encourage you during those three days, but if you want to join us for that, but I would just encourage you, we're going to bow our heads now and close our eyes. I would just encourage you, if you haven't made a plan already this month for a fast, let us seek Jesus this month and grow in our passion for him. Lord Jesus, we want to love you more. We want to be a people who are strong spiritually. We want to grow in our passion. Some of us just feel so dead. Sometimes we just got to do something radical to shake ourselves up. We got to shake ourselves up, let go of some of that media intake and up some of our meditating on your word. Sometimes there's just something good about having a physical hunger that stirs us to seek you spiritually. I pray for every person who's starting to fast this week. I pray for all of us who are beginning this week, Lord Jesus, that 
that as we seek you, Jesus, we're going to grow in passion for you. We're, we're going to put away good things, not because it's a rule, not because of legalism. We're going to put aside good things this month, fine things, entertaining things. We're going to put them aside. We're going to restrict ourselves because we want to love you more. I pray that as a church, your spirit would fall on us and we would fall in love with you. In your precious, powerful name we pray, Jesus. Amen.